Praise the Lord. Wednesday night Bible study. Let's uh, begin in prayer. We're in the book of Daniel, part 9, chapter 9. So let's pray. Lord God, we give you honor, praise, and again, glory. We thank you for this day and this time, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you help us uh, understand these individual chapters. And then Daniel as a whole, because, Lord, you, you wanted us to know about all of these things. And so, Lord, as we read through here, help us to understand and get the information, but also the application in all of this. So, Father, we just uh, thank you. I thank you for those that are here, those that are on their way, those that could make it. Lord, we just thank you that uh, you minister to all of us, and we thank you for the ability to record this, Lord, so that we can watch it or listen to it at a later date and time. So in this, we just give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Daniel, part 9, chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the Median descendant, descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as a word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, okay, this is, they're still in Babylon. It's just a different king has come in, and by this we can date it. The year is 539 B.C. And Daniel is now 82 years old. I remember when I used to read Daniel before I actually studied Daniel, I thought through most all of this, Daniel was a young guy. And then later on I actually studied it and I realized, oh no, he's just a young guy in the first, you know, first part of it. He's, he's uh, because his ministry, the book of Daniel spans the whole 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. So it, 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 he's there that whole time. So he's like, what, 15, 16 when he's, when he's brought over? So, you know, he's, uh, he's got about three years left here. So, but he's 82 years old, which back in those, that day and time was pretty old, you know. So, um, so Daniel is reading Jeremiah, which tells us something about Daniel. Not only is he a man of prayer, not only is he follows God, but he's reading scripture that they have up to that point. And so in Jeremiah... Jeremiah says that if the people don't do right, God is going to take them off the land because they have a covenant relationship with God and they said they would do this and God would do that. But if they don't uh, follow God, he's going to take them off the land. So Jeremiah comes and, 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 and he's preaching that and they still don't repent. They still don't return to God. So yeah, they're taken off the land by Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the temple, takes them off the land. That begins the 70 years. But Daniel also talks about the, that they will be off the land for 70 years. So here now is Daniel reading Jeremiah, and all of a sudden he's, he's like maybe counting on his fingers. I don't know. All of a sudden he realizes the 70 years are almost up. So, you know, he's, he's, he's aware of stuff. And for us... This is kind of interesting because, you know, when we read things or we read about, you know, end time events or different things, you know, we look at it and we can begin to see in, in our lifetime, you know, wow, things are kind of come falling in place here, you know, according to what scripture says. It doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow or in the next year, but you can see these things lining up. And so this is what Daniel is saying. He's reading Jeremiah and he's saying, well, this is lining up. Something is about to happen. Something is about to change. Okay? So now we go into his intercession. Intercession, by the way, is a form of prayer. It's where you intercede for someone else or something else. For example, if you're praying for the government, you're interceding on behalf of the government. So intercession is basically you stand in between that which you are praying for and God. So you're connecting to God to that which you're praying for. 
That's what intercession is. You know, and uh, uh, <clears throat> and you're always intercession is always directed towards God, because God is the one who's going to redeem or deal with whoever it is that you're praying for. So he makes intercession here. So, verses three and four. He says, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer, supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So he's going into intercession here. And he's talking about prayer. Prayer is where you go to God. Now prayer, just the word prayer, it could be thanksgiving. It could be acknowledgement of God. It could be thanking God. Because then it says prayer and supplication. Supplication means to humbly ask. So you, you'll see this in the New Testament as, as well. You know, prayer and supplication so in other words, we go before God knowing who God is, praying to the creator of the universe in Jesus' name, all of that, and then it's, you know, you know, it's that confession of sin, of who I am and, and who we are, what we've done wrong, which puts us in a, in a place of humility, and then at that point we, we now ask God for what, whatever it is. So supplication is to humbly ask rather than demand. You know, sometimes if you watch, and I don't necessarily uh, advise you to do this, but if you watch people pray on Christian TV, they're almost demanding of God. God, do this. God, do that. It's like what Martin Luther King said. You know, you turn um, Jesus into a cosmic bellhop. Jesus, get me this. Jesus, get me that. You know, kind of thing like that. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. The word supplication, in the English language, can we... Um Say not their um, synonym or um, the word pleading yes, in English. Yes. Is that yes? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Supplication is Lord, my heart is broken. <laughs> kind of thing, or Lord, I don't, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm in a place and only you can, you know. Yeah, it's that plead. It's just like you know, it's not working here, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 you know that. Good point. Um, prayer, supplication, fasting. Uh, a lot of times what they would do, and, you know, they would fast. And fast is a translation from a Hebrew word. And what it really means is to cover your mouth. That's what the Hebrew word, I forget what the Hebrew word actually is right now. But fasting, it comes from a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word means to cover your mouth. But it used to be translated as Fasting. And, and what it means is that you're going to sit there, you're not even going to break for food until you get the answer or until you've exhausted your prayer. You know, that's what, what that is. And then he adds sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes is when you were now mourning. And they would literally uh, get ashes from burnt wood or whatever it was, and they would put this outer garment on, which would be something like, almost like a burlap, burlap sack, and they would put that over themselves in the ashes, and they would literally throw the ashes on themselves, and they would be sitting there praying, and when you saw someone do that, you knew that they were in deep mourning for something. And so sackcloth and ashes is not necessarily always the death of an individual, because he's going to be praying for the nation. He's mourning for the nation. Same way uh, Nehemiah does when he prays. He's mourning for the whole, for the whole uh, nation. Uh, let me see here. Thought of something. Mm. Uh, yeah, no. So, uh, 
just kind of a back note here. Deuteronomy 7, 9, you don't have to turn to it. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. So you see, he's, he's, he's understanding this, that God keeps his covenant, says you know what, what he's going to do, what he says. So when he's reading in Jeremiah that the 70 years are up, this is, in a sense, the reference that, that he can use to go to God and say, God, the 70 years are almost up. And now plead with God, uh, you know, the, the sackcloth and ashes and all that over what it is he's going to be praying for. And so, what prompts Daniel's intercession? He's reading Jeremiah, you know, and, and he sees uh, what, what Scripture says. It's not like any different than us, that when we read Scripture, you know, we're in Chronicles or whatever it is, and it says, you know, if my people will just humble themselves and pray. And, you know, that touches us, and so what do we do? We go into prayer, and we start praying, Lord, that our nation, our people, the church, we would humble ourselves before Almighty God, and same sort of thing. That's what prompts the, uh, the intercession of Daniel. So, uh, just a back note for, for, for those two. We're, we just read Daniel 1 to 4, and basically it's the year 539. Daniel's 82 years old. He's reading Jeremiah, and he reads and finds out that the 70 years of their exile is almost up. And so now what we just read in Daniel 3, 4 is that he's praying to God about this. What does this mean? You know, and how is this going to come about? Because he doesn't really know at this point. Okay? Any thoughts, questions? We're good? So now verse 5. By the way, this is model prayer. So when you, when you see the prayers in the Bible, kind of note how they pray and how they, how they approach. Because again, it's prayer, supplication, humbly ask. You're mourning, you're hurt, you're, as Juicy said, you're pleading with God for something that you're, you're in that position where only God can help you. You know, God, go God, please, help. So verse 9, 5, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 5. Here's his prayer. We have sinned. Now this is important in prayer. And you remember what Jesus said about prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Jesus says pray in this manner. So in other words, when we pray, it's not just my name's Jimmy, I'll take all that you can give me. No offense to anybody named Jimmy. That you're, you're acknowledging, we're acknowledging our own, our own sin, our own shortcomings, rather than making demands of God. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, again, it's part of supplication. It's knowing who we are, knowing who God is, and knowing that, in effect, if it, we don't have the right to appeal to God except for God's mercy and God's grace. That's what gives us the right to appeal to Him, because He extends that mercy and grace to us. So verse 5, We have sinned, committed inequity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from the commandments and ordinances. So sin here, he says we have sinned, but then he uses four words to define the sin. And I found this very interesting. There are four descriptive words for sin. Because sometimes we think of sin as like, okay, well I didn't kill anybody today, so I didn't break that commandment. You know, I didn't use the Lord's name in vain. You know, I didn't kill. By the way, you know what using the Lord's name in vain is? It's not necessarily a cuss word. Well, you use his name where it doesn't belong. That's that's using his name in vain. You know, uh, um, taking his name and trying to apply it to, to something else. That's why I always say, you know, holy, H-O-L-Y, is a word that if we did not have revelation of God, we would not have the word holy. So the word holy is only tied to God. That's why I say cows are not holy, Toledo is not holy. That's in a sense using God's name in vain. 
right? Now you can say, okay, well, I'm going to use a W-H-O-L-L-Y. <laughs> you know, okay, you're, you're a little bit safer ground there, but still, understand. So he uses four, four terms here, four very descriptive words to define the sin that he's talking about. One is inequity. Inequity, as it's translated from Hebrew, means to do wrong, to twist. So in other words, sometimes we do wrong because we twist the scripture. That doesn't really mean that. doesn't mean that. Really. You know, if you want to see a good case of twisting, just watch the news at night. And you'll get the spin, right? We call it the spin. Well, it's a twist. You're taking the truth and you're doing what? Leaving a little bit of truth there and then you're twisting the heck out of it. To do what? To fit your narrative. So that's what inequity is. To do wrong by twisting. By changing what the truth is or trying to make it sound like it's truthful, it's God, but you're really taking it in a different direction. This is why I say when you take God's word out of the intent that it was used for, you lose the power because now it's taken and applied wrongfully. Then the second thing he says is wickedly. In this this is translated from Hebrew means to be pronounced as guilty. You know, we're, 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 we're guilty. But yet, you know, how many times do people get caught with a hand in the cookie jar and they say, well, I didn't do anything. And there's a picture of them with a hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> you know, and I didn't do well, I didn't do anything. You know, no, you're guilty. God knows. We're guilty. So wickedly means you've already been pronounced guilty. And so if you take this and apply it to the gospel, we've all fallen short, we're all guilty. That's why we need a Savior, right? Because we've all acted wickedly. That's our sin. Then the third thing is rebelled. As it's translated, it means to rise in revolt. And in this case, he's praying about who and for who? The nation. So he's saying this is a national revolt. We are in exile. We are in Babylon because of a national revolt. We have, as a nation, revolted against God. So he's not letting anybody off the hook here. Because remember, chapters 8 to the end of Daniel are talking about Israel. As a nation, we have revolted. So he defines sin as inequity, wickedness, Wickedness, wickedly, rebelled, and then turning aside. Turning aside means to reject God and reject what he has said. So when you turn aside, so sometimes when you hear that, well, they just turned aside. What they're saying is you're you're turning aside, you're rejecting God. And so Jeremiah comes and says, you've rejected the Lord thy God, and if you continue to do this, he's going to take you off the land. And that's what happens. It's, it's judgment because of that. And by the way, the judgment of Israel, we're going to find out in, in a little bit, isn't just the 70 years. It's longer than, than the 70 years. They're just going to be off the land for 70 years. Just because they come back does not mean there are people that are still not under judgment for what they've done. Because when they come back to the land, they come hobbling back to the land and other nations control the land. They don't control the land anymore. They're under uh, different rule. And, and in Jesus' time, Rome is governing them. And after Jesus dies in 70 AD, Roman kicks them off the land and they don't come back to the land until uh, 1948 as, as a nation. They actually creep back in the late 1800s, but uh, that's another story. Okay, so he goes into prayer. He he admits the sin of the people, in our verse six to sixteen. Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Remember, the prophets came and they spoke to the people. A prophet does not speak of of his or her own mind and will. They say the Lord has said. So prophets like Jeremiah, you know, and Ezekiel, and in uh, 
and Samuel and all that and say, you have broken the word of God. This is what God has said. You have broken it. They don't come up and say, the Lord told me to tell you, uh, cut your hair short and buy a blue suit. And, and No, that's not, that's, not, that's not prophecy. Prophets only say, thus saith the Lord what God has said. So servants of the prophets who spoke in thy name to our kings and princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee. Notice in his prayer, righteousness belongs to you, O God, O Lord, but to us open shame. So he's, he's right there, he's nailing it. This is where you are, this is where we are. We are shameful in your sight because you gave us all this, you gave us the land, you gave us your blessing, you did all this, and what did we do? We turned aside, we rebelled, we acted wickedly, and on top of that, we, 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 we tried to twist everything for our own good. Yes? Do you know what Daniel is just finding out about, about all these years that he's been in, um, in the foreign land, and he's an old man, and is he just finding out about what was written in Jeremiah? From the book of Steve, I think he's probably read this before, but it's most likely, have you ever read scripture and you say, wait a minute, I didn't see that before? There's something, wait a minute, I didn't, I didn't really see the application there, I didn't really, so maybe something like that, because he was very devout, and you know, he was, one of the things about Daniel, you find nothing wrong about Daniel. There's nothing in Scripture that shows anything Daniel did wrong. He's not a perfect individual, but, you know, everybody else, you know, the warts and the flaws come out, but Daniel, there's nothing that says he did anything wrong. So he was a pretty devout guy, and, you know, he was a man of prayer and and, in Scripture. So, you know, either that or maybe he read it earlier, and it was still a long time off, and all of a sudden he said, well, now it's getting close. But what's tied to it is going to be uh, um, the uh, um, the answer to this prayer. So you know, opportune time. So let's see. For seven righteousness bonds to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away in all the countries to which thou hast driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against thee. When we sin, we we sin against who? God. Open shame belongs to us. See, he, he goes on. I mean, he's, he's laying it out here. Open shame belongs to us. Because remember, the nations were to look at Israel and see God at work. And so what did they do? They did shameful things. They didn't follow God. And he says, he says, you know, they, they see us as an open shame. And what we've done is we put our shame on you. Because we're supposed to reflect who you are so that the nations around you will know that there is a Lord thy God in heaven. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. Verse 9. To the Lord our God belongs compassion, forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Notice how many times he says, O Lord, in God. You know, he's, he's referencing here uh, uh, Elohim, Adonai, Yahweh. You know, the Old Testament name for God. And uh, 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 so, by the way, Jehovah is not in the Bible. You have some some translations that might use the word Jehovah. Jehovah is not in the Bible. Jehovah is a made-up word. So Jehovah Witnesses, when they come knocking on your door and they're trying to tell you the tr- truth, you say, well, Jehovah is not in the Bible. Why is it not in the Bible? Because it is a word that was made up by Jewish people years ago that they took Yahweh, which is the name of God. And Jews do not pronounce the name of God because they say we're not able to approach God. And so they would use Elohim or they would use Adonai. But for, for Yahweh, what they did 
was they took the vowels and the consonants of, of, of Elohim and Adonai and they added them to, to Yahweh and that becomes Jehovah. So that's where Jehovah comes from. So the word actually Jehovah, we know it means Lord, God, but technically it's not in the Bible. It's not a Hebrew word per se. It's a word that people made up. So when it's added to the Bible, that is a mistake by the editors. So I don't think anyone have, have that, but that's... I have a lot of useless information, so I got to get it out. So I'm just passing it out. So do with it whatever you want. Verse nine: To the Lord our God belongs compassion, forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He set before us through His servants, the prophets. So not only did we disobey the word, we disobeyed what we were taught. Okay. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed. By the way, when it says Israel, sometimes it can just be referring to the north, northern kingdom, because the southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. But when he's referring to the whole nation, he'll use the name Israel. So here he says, indeed, all Israel. So he's talking about north and south, southern kingdom. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Remember, Moses comes down to the mountain, and God says, I set before for you today both blessings and cursings. And then he gives us a hint, choose blessings. And he says, because if you don't, we're going to be under a curse. And so this is why they're under a curse, because they didn't follow God after they said they would. Because remember, when Moses comes down with the law, the people all ratified it and said, yes, we will do this. Okay, Verse 12. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven... There has not been done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our inequity and giving attention to thy truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, for we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for thyself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. For because of our sins and the inequities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. So this is the block of his prayer there. Uh, and, you know, he, 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 he just nails it. He doesn't, let, he doesn't let anybody off the hook here. We've all sinned, our, our rulers, our leaders, everyone, we've all sinned, we, we, we've rebelled, we've, we've acted wickedly, we've done all these things. And then, verse 16, he says, O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, because part of God's righteous acts are not only does he give us the law, and he tells us, we're going to be under judgment if we if we move away from them. But he also tells us if we return, then we will be re restored. So this is part of his righteous acts. With all thy righteous acts, now let thy anger and thy wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem. You know, this was a center of worship. So he's pleading that, Ju that Jerusalem be reestablished because Ju that's not only, the, in a sense, the capital, but that's where the center of worship, right? That was the place of worship. Thy holy mountain, because, you know, it's built on a mountain there, uh, not Moriah. Uh, uh, uh. Did I ever tell you a rabbi's story 
I got more useless information. Mm -hmm. I would tell you that with, with a, a rabbinic story when they were asked about why did God choose Mount Moriah to push the temple? Did I ever tell you that story? Mm -hmm. no? Okay, I'll save it for another. No. Day. no yeah. <laughs> so this is a, this is a, this is this is the story. There were two brothers, and. Uh, yeah, they lived a long, long time ago, like in the time of, of Genesis, before the temple, before any of that stuff. <clears throat> and the story is that the two brothers were very prosperous. You know, they owned a lot of land, a lot of cattle and sheep and all this stuff. And then one day, one of the brothers got married, took a wife, got married and began to have kids. And they had always made a vow that they would always share everything, like families do, Right. In, in, in which is, you know, kind of the way things were back in the day. You know, you worked on the farm and everybody shared, and you didn't go move away. You stayed on the, the family just got bigger, the farm got bigger. And so the story is that the two brothers made this vow, and so the one brother gets married and he has a bunch of kids, and the other is still single, and they were still sharing. And so the 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 one that was single started thinking and he says, wait a minute, this isn't right that, that, uh, uh, say this is not right. He says, this isn't right in, there's four houses here. He says, this isn't right that I'm sharing all, half of all of this when it's only me my brother has all of this, this family. So at harvest time and stuff, in the middle of night, he would take his stuff and add it to the barn that was part of the brothers. And so in the morning when the brother would come and see what he took, then he would see, oh my God, the Lord has replenished what I took. I have more than enough for my family. But at the same time, this brother said, I have all of these children to take care of me in my old age, but my brother doesn't have anyone. So what is he going to have? So at night, he would take from his harvest, and he would what? He would go back here and replenish his. And so when he would come and he would see it, and the Lord has given me abundance. And this went on for a while. Until one day, as you would have it in the story, they both show up at the same time. God said, on love such as this, works for me. Mm -hmm. Rabbi, sorry. So where were we? Okay. 16. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, and now thy anger, turn away thy wrath from the holy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, for because of our sins and the inequities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. In other words, we stink because of what we've done. Everybody sees it around us. We're off the land. We're nothing. And they should have had everything. God gave them everything and they didn't have anything. And so it's Daniel's intercession that he goes before God. So for your outline, what does Daniel use to outline the sin of the people? So when he's saying we've sinned and we've done this and that, what is he using? God's commandments. His commandments, which are found where? 
in the law of Moses. So he's using, he has the first five books, that's the first five books of the Bible. So in other words, bouncing off of that, that's why the gospel, when you preach the gospel to someone, you know, in, in you know, when I share on how to preach the gospel, you always use the Ten Commandments, you know, because everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not whatever, and then people think they're good or they're going to go to heaven because God loves them or whatever. And then, you, and like I told you before, you just ask them a simple question. Do you think you're a good person? And 99% of the time they will say, yes, I'm a good person. And I say, can I ask you a couple questions to see if you're a good person? And everybody's up for that challenge. They say, oh, yeah, I'm, oh, yeah I'm, I got this one because I know I haven't killed anybody. I haven't, just, I haven't that, right? And so then, and then you say, have you heard of the Ten Commandments? Oh, yeah, I've heard of the Ten Commandments. And they say, well, God says he was going to judge us according to the Ten Commandments. So I'm saying that God's going to come and judge us according to those Ten Commandments. So let me ask you a couple questions according to the Ten Commandments. You say, okay. Have you ever told a lie? Thou shalt not bear false witness. And everybody's going, yeah. You know, they're, they try and minimize it. Yeah, I haven't told a lie. And what does that make you? It makes you a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Wow, when I was a kid, I stole, you know. If you steal something, what does that make you? A thief? Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Well, sometimes I just get mad. Okay, well, that's blasphemy. That's a very bad thing in the Bible. And then you can use, for example, uh, Scripture says that if you look upon another person with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked at another person with lust? You know, and usually they'll go, yeah, you know, whatever. And they say, okay, by your own admission, you're a lying, stealing, blaspheming adulterer. And I've only asked you four questions. Using the law of Moses. So this is what Daniel's doing. He's using the law to outline their sin. And so going back to the gospel... And so you say, this is why we need a Savior, because we're all dead in our sins. And Jesus Christ came and paid the price for that sin. That's the gospel thing right there. That's lead someone to salvation. It's not that hard. So anyway, he uses the law of Moses. And so Daniel identifies the disobedience of the people through the law of Moses, which is what the scriptures are for us, to for us to see our own disobedience based upon what we've done. And so he sees what they have done. He confesses it to God. And really, isn't this really what any father... And by the way, the God of the Old Testament is really in terms of Father God. That's, <coughs> that's, that's the way look, it's Father God. And so when an authoritative figure, whether it's a mom or dad, and the child has done something wrong, what do you want the child to do? Just tell me what you did. Uh you have anything to tell me, Erwin? You have anything to tell me, Steve? No. There's like one time my mom hid my Christmas gift up in the thing, and I knew it was up there. It was a football, and it was on a tee. I was like eight years old, and I went up there. And she knew I went, and I couldn't figure out how she knew. And she says, you have anything to tell me? And I said, no. She said, did you get any Christmas gift? No. Well, why is there smudge marks all over that clean, you know? She saw my dirty little fingerprints all over the all over the thing. All she wanted me to do was fess up. And so what does God want from us? Admit what we've done wrong, right? That's why we have the law. That's why the prayers in the Bible admit what we have done wrong. Uh, so kind of add this model prayer to your prayer life. Supplication before God, humbly asking, uh, you know, this is what we've done, especially when we're praying for our country. Uh, you know, we've, our country's done a lot of things that need to be uh, atoned for. Thoughts or questions for anyone, the rest of this? Okay, 17 to 19. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. Because remember, sanctuary is empty. It's, it's trashed. O my God, incline thy ear and hear. Open thine eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own. Notice, 
He says, it's not because we're, we're, we're being good here. We're acknowledging what we did wrong. But on account of thy great compassion, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own sake, O my God, do not delay, because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. So Daniel, reading Jeremiah, realizes it's like two and a half, three years away from it, 70 years is going to be up. So he hits his knees and starts praying for the rebuilding of the nation, that they would go back, which is outlined in Ezra and Nehemiah. So when, you, when you're done with Daniel, then you read Ezra and Nehemiah, and you see the result of, of this prayer, and the people become, come, begin to come back to the land. So how can, how can Daniel appeal to God? And all of this, what's his justification? And God is a God of a compassionate, loving God. and we He keeps his commandment. And if we're willing to repent. And then also because what God he showed him in Jeremiah. <clears throat> Jeremiah said this. This is time. And so, again, if you have the scripture on your side, now you are just praying the will of God. That's why it says, how do you pray in vain? Uh, uh, you know, you, you pray outside of God's God's will. You know. And so that's uh, something that needs to be looked at. Sometimes when, when we're praying. And, and one little side note on prayer. No is an answer. Country song. Some, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayer. Because <laughs> sometimes we ask for stuff. You know, that we think we really want, we really need, and in the end, God's like, no, no, we ain't going to do that. You know. But sometimes we think yes is only an answer. And I remember telling somebody one time, I used to teach prayer in another church, and he says, well, I've been waiting on the Lord. And I said, what are you waiting on the Lord for? And then they told me, and I said, well, what you're waiting for is a yes, and I think he's already told you no. God didn't like me for about a week and a half. <laughs> he got over it. So anyway, now this this is what happens after his prayer, verse twenty to twenty three. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing, notice he says my sin and the sin of he doesn't say what it is, but again Daniel's not perfect. He's not Jesus, so he's he's got some sin even though it's not outlined, right? My sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of thy holy mountain of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, remember last week we talked about Gabriel, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now he's he's been praying all day here. Remember, he's fasting, sackcloth and ashes he hasn't eaten, and in my extreme weariness... He's still at it. Gabriel comes to him. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. So he says, you've been praying. I've come here to give you insight and understanding. He says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now he's going to give him a vision of something. So what's happening here is Gabriel comes and he says, as soon as you begin praying, the command had already gone forth. You know? And, and, but what Daniel is about to get is more than he asked for. What he's going to get right now, he didn't ask for. So when we're going back to what we said in the beginning about Daniel, that you're going through all these things, world leaders and all these different things in these countries and, you know, trying to dominate people. And what's all this about? And it's talking to the Gentiles. And now it's talking to the uh, uh, Israelis, the people of God. And what's going on? Now it's going to shift right here. It's going to shift to, to, to some end time events. It's going to shift uh, towards stuff that, that has New Testament implications. Now, if you're reading this, up to this point, you have no clue as to what's about to happen. If you haven't read this before, 
You have no clue as to what's going to happen. So, are we ready? Yeah. Seatbelts on? Mm-hmm. Okay. 24. 70 weeks has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for inequity, to bring in the everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. So he's just praying that we can all go home. And Gabriel shows up and gives him this thing about 70 weeks. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your cities, for Jerusalem. So now it's not only the people, this is tied to Jerusalem, right? To finish the transgression. So in other words, as I said earlier, their being off the land for 70 years doesn't finish their, their judgment. Their judgment continues. He says, because another to finish the transgression, the 70 weeks are going to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. Who takes away sin? Jesus. Jesus. Okay? Now just hold that thought. To make atonement for inequity. Who makes atonement for our inequity? Jesus. Jesus. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. Who does that? To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So this is talking about God's temple is going to be rebuilt. Things are going to be happening. And so you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore. Not from when he says this, but there's going to be a decree coming to let the people go back home. This is, this is important. So think about that. He says, from the issuing of this coming decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince. To, and so now he's tied to, he's going to be, the decree is going to be issued to rebuild Jerusalem. And then in this temple, in this Jerusalem, Messiah will come in that re- rebuilding. And it will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. When they go back, they have a lot of hardship going back because they're not under their own rule. They're, you know, the country's weak. It's whatever. But they gradually come. And remember last week we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes who came and, and ransacked the temple and all this stuff and, and sacrificed a pig. And then you had the Maccabean revolt and they, they got back the temple, and which is where we get Hanukkah. And all that stuff. Uh, you know, that was all in last week's lesson. So it says in verse 26, Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So when is Messiah cut off? Crucifixion. Yeah, they reject him. He's cut off. Uh, we'll be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Because remember, when once Jesus, you know, he goes off the cross in 33, something like that, you know, but in 70 AD, Rome ransacks and scatters the Jews, and that's how the Jews all get to Europe and over that, and come over here and they build delis and it's really good. So anyway, mm-hmm. and it will, and its end will come with a flood even to the end. Uh, this is not, that word flood, by the way, is not necessarily meaning water. It's coming like a rush. The end is going to come like a rush, like raging water. And this is what, you know, Armageddon is going to be, that final war. It's going to be like a rush, uh, uh, something that consumes you. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, 70 weeks. This gets, 
We tend to look at things by decades, by tens. Biblically, they look at things by sevens. Seven years, seven times seven is, is 49, it's a year of jubilee. Uh, uh, seven days, things were made, it's a number of completion. And so you, so basically what they're talking about here, that they realize it's not 70, uh, 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 in a sense, uh, days or, or, or weeks, it's 70 times seven. I'm going to walk you through this. It's 70 sets of seven. So the Son of Man who was given dominion by the Ancient of Days. We read this in Daniel 7. I'm going to reread it. Daniel 7, chapter 13 and 14. Because remember, all this is building towards something. So sometimes you have to remember what was in the other visions to understand what's being said. So... Chapter 7, verse 13. He says, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So Gabriel is hooking up with what has already been given Daniel. So we have to know this to understand what's going on here. Scripture references Scripture. Uh, and then the coming Messiah, it says, will be cut off. We're going to get into this next week, but here's a little preview. Chapter 10, look at verse... Five. Chapter 10, verse 5. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Ephaz. His body was like burl, his face was the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men were with me, did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell upon them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. He's gonna, Next week we're going to talk, he's getting a vision now of Messiah, who Messiah is going to be. So you kind of have to connect these little dots here a little bit. Now going back to the vision. Basically there's 69 weeks that are going to pinpoint the coming of the Messiah. So the decree takes place on March 4th in the year 444. And this is in Nehemiah chapter 2 by the way. So Nehemiah talks about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Ezra, which is the front part of Nehemiah, talks about the spiritual rebirth of the nation, the first people that go back and they find scripture and they begin to read it again. But Nehemiah is about the physical rebuilding. And so Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 8, talks about, you know, once the the decree was given. So we know when the decree was given. It was given on March 4th, the year 444. So 69 weeks of 7 years equals 483 years or 1,730 days of 360 days. So in other words, this leads to March 29th, the year 33 AD. And that's the date of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. So right there, the 69 weeks are used and there's going to be one week left. Just a little side note here. You can write this down. Zechariah 9.9. 
Zechariah 9.9, talking about end time events, throws this one little thing in here. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, a fowl of a donkey. So Zechariah predicts this uh, coming in on a donkey. By the way, Jesus rides a donkey. Why? Well, you mentioned that a horse is a, a humbleness, a, a weapon. Horses are for warfare. Donkeys are are, are are what princes and kings ride on. Yeah. So in those days, if you were on a horse, it was military weapon. In those days, so horses were. You know, gallop through, but a, a, a donkey, a colt, young young animal like that. That's what princes rode. So now you have sixty nine years of the seventy weeks left, and what's left are are seven years. Okay. When we get to Revelation, I'm going to do Revelation after we do this, and so when we do, I'm probably going to come back and reference some of this stuff for you. But basically, what he's saying is seventy. Times seven, you know, years has been determined. By the way, the calendar that we use to get to this date is not 365 days. It's 360. Hebrew calendar is 360 days. And the reason is it the, the month starts with a new moon. So that's why our calendar is off. Because it doesn't start with a new moon. That's why every four years we have to have leap year to catch up. Jewish uh, Hebrew calendar is, is always accurate because it's always 360 days because it's the new it's the new moon. So what's left now is, is, is seven years is left. Now verse 27. It says, and he will make a firm covenant. Notice it doesn't say necessarily he is, but somebody's coming, something that's coming. It says he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. One week is what? Seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wing of abomination. On, a, on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So what you have here that is later referenced in, in Revelation is that when the Antichrist comes, he's going to come and again, you have to take from Zechariah, you have to take from Daniel, you have to take from uh, uh, Matthew, you have to take from Thessalonians, you have to take the you know, Colossians, and obviously Revelations. And you put Revelation, you put all of this together, and now you get a picture of who this Antichrist is going to be. He's going to come as a man of peace, speaking peace. He's going to be part of a, because uh, uh, remember we talked about the Ten Crowns? Mm-hmm. You know, someone's going to come from that. Most likely, so European economic community that area. He's going to come out. He's going to subdue two, three of those kingdoms, and out of that, one little horn is going to rise, and that little horn is now going to be that beast. And says he will make a a covenant with Israel. And this is the little horn of the fourth beast, which is Daniel chapter seven, verse eight. And after three and a half years. He's going to break covenant. So he's going to come as a man of peace. He's going to be a political world ruler that is now tied to this world domination. Because again, we've been talking about different nations rising up, trying for one world domination and haven't made it. And so it's just building a case, building a case, showing that in times that scenario is going to rise again. And this is who the Antichrist is going to be. It's going to see this. This is why people that watch these and pay attention to end-time events, they look for certain signs of things coming together. Like when you when people want a one-world currency. We've heard talk of this for, for a number of years because that's, that's what the euro is, right? It was in Europe, you would have, oh, it's great, you just have one currency now for these 10, 12 countries and you don't have to worry about changing money. Yeah, yeah. Problem with that is all you have to do is con- control one banking system. And you got them all. And so there are people that want a one world 
uh, banking system uh, so that all things are the same, everything, and they say, oh, everything is equal and everybody will share. Yeah, well, all you got to do is control that, and you've now controlled all the con currency in the entire earth. You know, and so that's, you know, people look at these things as, as signs. And when you have that one world government kind of thing and uh, former uh, premier of Russia, uh, Gorbachev, he was real big on that. Uh, uh, he, he was he thought there should be a one world government anyway. And so what happens is the Antichrist is going to uh, be this man of peace, supposedly in a nation, in an area where there has been no peace. Everybody's going to hail him as great, but then he's now going to not only try and be the political king, he is now going to try and be the religious king. Because as we find out in Revelation, he's going to go into the sanctuary uh, of God in the, in the middle of this seven-year period, declare himself to be God, and that now brings us the last three-and-a-half-year period is known as the Tribulation with the coming uh, return of Christ. Okay? So that's a little... He drops his little 70 weeks in on us in Daniel. Boom! You know, we're, we're praying for one thing. We're praying for the restoration of that. And then all of a sudden, he gets this end time stuff. He doesn't know what he's getting. Right? He doesn't know. Yeah. He's just write it down. He's just... Uh, he's like, you know... I don't know. But, you know. Okay, great. And so, by the way, and you, and you, and you think... Why is it like this? Why doesn't the Bible just A to Z? Why is it, Why can't we just have a chronological? Because number one is Jewish literature, and Jewish literature is not written that way. It's, I'm going to tell you this, I'm going to tell you that. Oh, by the way, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to tell you that, and I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to tell you that. They don't tell you A to Z. It's, it's, it's you know, the Bible is, is broken up into the law, first five books, then it's broken up into the prophets, you know, those that spoke prophetically. I mean, they're all prophetic, but, you know, the, the prophets. And then you have the writings, which, which is more the, uh, the Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Daniel's part of that because of the visions and stuff. And so it's broken up in that, like that. It's not telling you a chronological story. That's why if you want to read it chronologically, you read... Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. That tells you the entire narrative of the Old Testament. Everything else is fitted in during that part. And the prophets all come towards the end of that period. Because that's when they're speaking. Because they're speaking to the kings. So if you read those 11 books in that order, you will have the entire history of the Old Testament. And so uh, uh, maybe we'll do that after we get, get through uh, Revelation. We'll go back and we'll do a survey of, of all all that stuff. I don't know, or wherever you guys want to go. Um, so uh, um, that, that, that's why, you know, the, the Bible's set up that way. Even the New Testament, I mean, you've, you've, you've got things are chopped, things, things are put in there, in there differently. It doesn't tell one story. Because if you want to continue the narrative... After Ezra and Nehemiah, then you read the Gospels and Acts. And that ends the historical side of the Bible because all the letters are written during the time of Acts. So when you read Acts, then you need to know when those letters were written. And we did that. And I think, was it last year? Really last year? We put those, those letters in place. So uh, I'll end it right there. I don't even know what time it is. Let me stop this. That uh, um, thoughts, questions on anything? A couple questions. Uh, let's see, in verse 25, it talks about seven sevens and 62 sevens. Is that some kind of convention that was used? I mean, why say, why break it up that way? Another question is, did would Daniel have known that uh, when he, uh, he's being told sevens, he would have understood it to mean years? Probably, because um, when you read commentaries on this, and you have to read quite a few commentaries on it, because sometimes some are a little different in their thought, but the general consensus is 
that because they looked at its its sevens as as um, 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 time frame again seven days of creation uh, uh, everything is, is is wrapped around sevens where we do things around in in, in decades they would look at it like that but th- another school of thought is that probably at this time they might not have understood it that way but now seeing it as it's played out you can go back and look at it and say okay it's not talking about 70 uh weeks you know because remember again scripture also says one day with the lord is is a thousand days so yeah you kind of have to understand it in those terms and so the question can now arise why does god do that well what does he tell us to do on his word Meditate. Think on it. You know, and pray about it, understand it. And so going and lining all these things up. And the, and the 62, it's, it's, it's weird because he says 70 weeks. And then he talks about, he talks about uh, 62 weeks and then 7, which is 69. And so the 69 takes us to the triumphant entry in, into Jerusalem. And then that leaves the one week. And so why not just say, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just, some of it's literature, some of it's just their, their form of writing, but we're not 100% sure if, if Daniel understood it to be, and if Daniel, uh, by the way, Daniel's not around when the decree is given, because it's not given until in Nehemiah's time, uh, but that's what starts it. So we know from that time to then, that marks the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. So that's a pretty good Marker. That's why I say from from Genesis chapter twelve to today, we can pretty much track time almost to the day. Before that, no, because there isn't any time frame markers. It's vast periods of time. So, but from Genesis twelve, you no, know, back we, we know it's about uh, forty five hundred years or something like that. Forty five thousand years, but forty five hundred years, yeah. So, anyway, uh, thoughts, questions. Concerns, we good. Next week, it's, he's just going to be adding on to this, building on to it, talking about the vision, the heavenly uh, messenger, and stuff like that, and kind of wrapping all these things up. And so, it's it, it all has to do with end time events from this point on. So that's where we're at. So that's why when we finish this, then I'll go to that part in, in Revelation where it talks about end time events and we'll talk about the Antichrist and the beast and stuff. And so we'll get that. Well, this is fresh in our mind. We'll kind of pack that in there so we can get a, a good picture of the end time events. And so, um, last thing. What is the last thing prophetically that has to happen before the revel- before the tribulation period can start? Because if we're looking at this and we're looking at signs and we're reading the Bible like Daniel and we're saying, okay, this is in place, that is in place. What is not in place yet? The temple. Temple. Temple Temple has to be rebuilt because that's what the Antichrist proclaims himself God in. So once that begins to be rebuilt, then that's the last thing. But it doesn't mean... It's going to be within a month or two or however long because that temple could exist for 300 years, 400 years before that. We don't know. We don't know that time frame. But that's the last piece. Once that temple is built, that's the last piece. Then Messiah can really come at any day. Or, or you know, the uh, Antichrist will be revealed and all that. So, we're good. Let's close the word of prayer.